Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, and um, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 30. Matthew chapter 25, uh, 14 through 30. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained uh, two more. But he who had received one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had uh, received one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you were to uh, be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather, uh, where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have in abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into utter darkness, and in his place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for this parable that Jesus gave, that uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew inscribed so that we can be reading it today. I pray now that uh, your spirit would illumine uh, your word so that we can be conformed, transformed more to the image of your Son. Father, we know that that brings you honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, <clears throat> this parable has a, a special place in my, uh, my heart because um, uh, my parents were missionaries, and missionaries have to, uh, they first have to raise support, independent Baptist missionaries have to raise support and they do that by going to different churches, and they present their ministry, and, and churches vote on uh, supporting them monthly. 
But then after every two or four years, the missionary comes back and gives a report to the church. And in giving that report, uh, usually they say how the funds were used during that time period, how many people got saved. And, and usually the missionary also gives a challenge from God's word. And it was uh, <clears throat> around... Uh, 1991, 92, that we were back in the States on one of these furloughs, and uh, this text my dad preached. Now, um, when you're going from church to church every week, well, one church doesn't know what you're preaching in the other church, so he was kind of using this text over and over again, and so by the time we were done with that furlough, I almost had the text memorized. I could almost word it mouth for mouth. It was... Um, as neat. And now here we are, finally at this point in this parable where uh, we're at, at this text. So it's uh, very fun. As we're looking at this text, Jesus is on the pathway to his death. He's on his pathway to the cross. Uh, he, he knows that he's going to die. Now, for us, uh, death tends to uh, stop plans. Like, we don't, you don't ever hear anybody say, so tomorrow I'm dying. And then on Tuesday, I'm going to, that type of stuff doesn't happen, right? Uh, Monday I die, and then you guys figure out what to do, right? That's that's the type of thing that that happens. Death tends to put an end to future plans, but not the case with Jesus. He knows he's on his way to die, but he's making plans and telling them how they're supposed to be living, what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, It's his death that's going to pay Uh, the price to satisfy the wrath of God for sin. He's going to redeem mankind. Uh, So there's plans for the future because there's this redeemed group of individuals uh, that will finally be all collected. There will be a second coming that will have uh, a Davidic kingdom and then a reign for all eternity. That's what is coming. So in Jesus' case, it doesn't have a a finality, like uh, I'm dying and, and that's it. Uh, many times you're in a situation where uh, you're talking with a family and uh, their loved one has passed away and uh, somewhere along the conversation somebody wants a certain song or a certain scripture to be read or something and uh, someone will say, that always happens, this person, this loved one would not like that. And that's when the other person turns to them and says, that person ain't here. You know, uh, <laughs> they're dead. You know, you don't get to say what's going to happen afterwards. But Jesus does. Now they're going to fail terribly. They they are at the cross. They're all taking off except for John. John's going to be there at the foot of the cross. But everybody else kind of fails this. They they are not making wise decisions. They're not planning ahead. And when their master, when their Lord is on the cross, they're hiding except for John. But after they see the risen Christ, there's a transformation that happens in them where all of them suffer a martyr's death except for John, who's going to end up in the island of Patmos. Um, By the time it was all said and done, he was probably already wishing he was dead a long time ago. But here is uh, this thing. Something happens to them where they are no longer scared of death, but they're preaching. You look through the Acts, and, and you see how they're preaching the gospel, and even though people are being martyred, they're still preaching the gospel. Something happens to them. And it's in this parable that we're going to look at that we're going to see some things that we need to be looking at. Now, last week we saw how there was uh, this decision-making uh, thing in the, the parable of the, of the ten virgins. 
the foolish virgins, uh, they had made plans, but their plans were quite, uh, uh, they, they, they weren't looking at when the bridegroom could come. These young ladies, they thought whatever was convenient, and so they made plans on what was convenient to them. And uh, many times when we think about a wise decision and a foolish decision, we think a wise decision is one that promotes what I want, my kingdom. If I make it a little bit ahead in life, if I become a little bit more comfortable, if things are just a little bit nicer for me, then that was a wise decision. What's interesting is that the wise young ladies are actually the ones who, um, who made plans in anticipation of the coming of the bridegroom. It was probably inconvenient taking oil, and it, it used a lot of resources. They had to uh, have all that oil and all the cloths soaked in oil ready for whenever he came. It, it, it was, it, it, if you were to say, it, it was a little bit wasteful of resources compared to the, the foolish young ladies. But Jesus says that um, even that wastefulness is wise when it's in anticipation of the room. Uh, we think about this, uh, many times people criticize missions. They think about uh, uh, sending a family over to some place, uh, some unreached people group. And uh, you think about uh, a family, how much funds you're going to need for that family to live over there, the, the cost of uh, setting up uh, plane tickets all the way over there, and what it costs to uh, get a house, cars, education, all that stuff. And, and you say, oh my word, a missionary needs that much money? Uh, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And what Jesus is putting in that parable is that decisions that seem like they're wasteful, but they're for the anticipation of the coming of Christ are actually wise decisions uh, rather than foolish. And, and those that are making decisions based on themselves, on what's convenient, those are actually the foolish decisions. The, now we're looking at this next parable, and it also has to do with decision-making. As we see, this parable is also focused on uh, the kingdom of heaven. And it says, for, uh, just as, uh, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. So the guy, there's a man who's identified just as a man. We don't really know anything about him, uh, where he's from, what he does for a living. Just he's a man. And uh, <clears throat> we start getting some hints about this man because he has some slaves. Uh, he has the ability to have slaves, and it says that he entrusted his possessions to them. Some have criticized this parable as saying this is not really a parable, Jesus would say, because parables have to have an aspect of being realistic. And this is not realistic. Who would entrust their things, their possessions to slaves? Well, slavery, slavery in this time does not uh, equal uh, being ignorant. Uh, many individuals who were professionals, uh, school teachers, lawyers, uh, medical, were, were slaves. Uh, Rome would come in and conquer an area, and all of them are slaves, regardless of what their possession was. They're slaves. And so here's a guy, and he has uh, three slaves, and these three slaves, he's going to entrust what he has to them. Specifically, it says, to one he gave five talents, to another two talents. And to another, he gives one. And uh, interestingly enough, he does this according to uh, his own ability. Each their own ability. <clears throat> we live in a time where um, 
we, uh, we, we kind of like to make everybody equal. Like, <laughs> um, but the reality is that not everybody can manage the same, right? Uh, we all have different gifts uh, that others don't. Uh, we live in a day when uh, you go and you play soccer and everybody gets the trophy and everybody gets the picture and everybody gets cheered. Uh, but this, this guy, he, he doesn't play that, that little game. He noticed that one of his slaves is really, really good and he gives him five talents. Another slave is good, but not as good as the other, and so he gives him two talents. And then he recognizes that he has one that can manage one talent, and so he gives him one talent. It, this might seem a little hateful. It might seem a little mean, but it really is an act of grace. Can you imagine uh, being a one-talent type person and receiving five talents to have to manage? I mean, <laughs> that would be... Uh, you know, who would want to have all that responsibility? If all you can do is manage one talent, but you've been given five talents and you're expected to manage that correctly, that's frustrating. So it's an act of grace that uh, this man acknowledges different talents within uh, his slaves, and so he gives according to their ability, what they can do. Uh, and uh, as we look at this, it says uh, he, he went on his journey. So he gives out these funds, and then he's off. Where does he go to? We don't know. But verse 16 kind of gives this idea that uh, almost as the gate is shutting, the gate hasn't really shut. I mean, he's walked out, and he's kind of closes the gate behind him. And as the gate is closing, immediately the guy with the five talents, he, he goes out, and a, a list of verbs start to characterize what he does. It says, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and he gained. Uh, a list of verbs there. And, of course, uh, the main verb is that he gained five more talents, which is pretty incredible, uh, that um, he can do this type of investment and get back 100%. I'm... I'm <laughs> terrible at selling stuff. I'm terrible at doing that type of thing. At the end, if I'm trying to sell something to make a little money, I end up paying the person and then helping them to uh, get the thing out of my house, right? Uh, I'm terrible at, at doing that. This guy is incredible. He not only doesn't lose any funds, he makes 100% profit. That's, that's incredible. Uh, it says, uh, verse 17, in the same manner, it's an adverb, it's one word in, in the Greek text, it's one word, but it carries just like this one guy. So here goes the man. He, he walks out. He's closing the gate. And as the gate's coming to close, the guy with the five talent sneaks out. The guy with two talent, just like the guy with the five talent, he sneaks out too. And he's out there. And there's just like how he did, he also had received and he also gains two talents. It's incredible. Oh, these guys. These guys are amazing at how they how they do this. Um, it says there in verse 18, um, but he who had received one talent, now the listener is, is picking up on something because there's a contrastive conjunction there. It's not in the same manner, but there's a, a but, which means something is happening, something's different. It's not following the thought, it's something is, is, is a sharp contrast between the first two and now this one. It said, but he who had received one talent went away, 
That's good. The other guys went away too. Uh, but he dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, it's a bit confusing as we think about this because uh, there's no instruction from the master. He gives these talents away. He gives these funds away. He gives these resources away. But there's really no explanation what they're supposed to be doing with the resources. Uh, are they supposed to just keep it in their pockets? They couldn't keep it. It's too large of a sum. But are, are they supposed to just hold on to it? Uh, are they supposed to count it every day? Are they supposed to hide it? Are they supposed to protect it? What are they supposed to do with these? And two of them have interpreted uh, this receiving to be investing it and gaining more. One of them has interpreted it as to take it and keep it, to guard it, to hide it, to make sure it does not get lost, nothing happens to it. And at this point, the listener is listening to the story and is kind of wondering, which one is the wise one? Which one is the foolish one? Which one uh, should we be emulating? Which one uh, should we be rejecting? We, we don't know at this point because there is there are no instructions from this um, ma uh, man. Verse 19 says that after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. After a long time. You remember all this got started was when the disciples wanted to know the signs of the end, and they also wanted to know when Jesus was going to come. And Jesus has not answered the when part. And even here in verse 19, he's not going to answer the when. He's going to say a long time. Uh, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts. Now, as we look at identity here, we, we notice something very peculiar, something interesting. Before it was just a man, and we guess a man that's kind of rich because he has slaves, but now the identity starts getting a little clearer that this guy is a, a master of them. It's his slaves. They're, they're not business partners. They're not guys that had just come together. They're not colleagues. They're, they're not guys who come together, have coffee in the morning, talk about investment options, blah, 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 and then go out and do their stuff. There's one who is the master, and he has his own agenda. He decides what he wants to do. And then he has these three guys who don't live for themselves. They live for their master, whatever he decides, whatever he wants to do. They, they have no desire on their own except for what the master wants. He comes back and he wants to settle accounts. That word for settling accounts is not, um, is not like the idea that you end up at a juice bar together and kind of just talk about the blessings of the Lord and say, oh, well, God's blessed me, oh, he's blessed me too, and, you know, in vague terms, we're all blessed, oh, yeah, yeah. It's not like that. It's, it's a detailed accounting of what has happened. What did you do while I was gone? I want to know exactly. It, it's showing receipts and doing this, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and they're ready. Verse 20 says that he who had received the five talents, he came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. The guy was ready. He had his PowerPoint presentation. He had his graphs. He had his Excel thing going on. He had uh, pie charts. He had his pie charts already. Uh, and he starts explaining what, what he did. I mean, he's going through this 40-minute presentation about put the money here, bought this piece of land, uh, ended up planting some barley. He sold the barley for this much. And 
he starts going through all the investments that he did, losing a little bit, gaining, uh, thought he was going to lose because there was a little bit of a drought, but then water came in, and he's going, and he's explaining, and look, five extra talents. Wow, it's amazing. But what does he, what does he say to him? Verse uh, 20, right? Uh, the one who had received, sorry, verse 21, the, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So we're talking about um, the kingdom of heaven. And what's interesting here is that you would anticipate kind of how we kind of think about heaven and, and eternity and so forth. We would say, good done, good and faithful servant, uh, because he's good and faithful because he has lived for his master. He hasn't lived for himself. He's good and faithful because... He has put the desires of the master ahead of his own desires. Now, here's this uh, chair. It's right in front of the fireplace. Put your feet up. Here's a book. Read. And just rest. That's what it says, right? No, it doesn't. You've been faithful and few. Now you're going to get more responsibility. It's not retirement and just float on a little Cloud. I don't, I don't know where we got the idea of heaven. We're going to be floating on clouds. If you look at the, uh, some of the Renaissance uh, artists, for some reason they put the, these guys floating on clouds with like these cloth diapers. I, I don't know where that comes from. but uh, and, and that's what we kind of think of all eternity, floating on a cloud in a, in a cloth diaper. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that there's this, if you have been faithful in a few you're going to be given more responsibility. It's not like, okay, you did good, now, now you can retire to the choir loft and uh, just pass the rest of your days there. No, it's, it's being involved in more. Well, I got five. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Well, uh, he goes on to the second guy. Also, verse 22, the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. Now, uh, he has his PowerPoint presentation as well. He's got his, his graphs. He's got his Excel documents. He's got uh, his pie charts. And he's talking about his investments and what he's doing and so forth and so on. He's ready for the presentation. The, uh, <laughs> the elders get together and they talk about finances Every so often, they have these budget sheets that they do. I don't know what they're talking about. But you got to fake it, right? Uh, you're like, oh, yeah, look, it looks good. You know, uh, that, That's a very round pie chart. Very good job, Jimmy. Uh, you made it exceptionally round this week. Uh, uh, you know, you, got, you can't tell them that you don't know what they're talking about. You go, mm-hmm, or just kind of keep quiet. Hmm, hmm. Uh, this guy's ready. He, he's not like me. He's ready. He's got the PowerPoint presentation. He's going through all the stuff. And what's the response? Now, to be honest, the guy, the guy before him has ten talents. This guy has two talents. And just to be honest, my natural tendency would be like, well, well that's nice, you know. Uh, bless your heart. You know, that, you know, that type of thing. You know, you kind of just, you know, you want to give him a little trophy or something, a sticker. Uh, but the other guy got 10, you know? I mean, we, we can't, you can't lose sight of that. 
guy has doubled his work, but still it doesn't even get half to what the other guy, you know. He, what's the response? Verse 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The same exact compliment? That's incredible. It seems then that the compliment is not based on how much you gain, but how faithful you were with what you received. It's not how much you increased, but is what you had, what did you do with it? Did you faithfully engage it for the master or not? Yeah, that's incredible because we don't live on that, right? We praise those who get really big gains. The other guys, we say, you know, try harder next, next month. Not this guy. This master, he recompenses because of faithfulness, not on how much was actually gained. Now, our, our minds are really struggling. We're kind of thinking, we're kind of contemplating a little bit. Uh, what about this third guy? He, the master seems really happy with this gaming. Uh, he didn't give any instructions. These guys went out on a limb, started investing. What about this third guy? So verse 24 says, And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping uh, where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. What motivates this man to do what he does? Fear. And ultimately, when we're afraid, in this case, He's scared of his master. He's not scared of his master having a heart attack that he doesn't. He's scared of the reaction that will have an effect on him. Ultimately, this is self-preservation. He knows how the master is. And who does he love more than the master? He loves himself. He cares about himself. He adores himself, and he doesn't want to put himself in a situation where he could have lost the funds or something could have happened. He doesn't want to receive the wrath of the master. So what does he do? He hid it. And now he presents it to him. Look, here it is. Voila. What's, what's the response going to be? Verse 26. But his master answered and said to him, you, lay, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Now, the interesting thing about this is that we might be tempted <clears throat> to think of a, a bank in our terms, like Bank of America, uh, Capital One, et cetera, et cetera, where you have uh, the federal government is involved in it and they kind of guarantee your funds. And, and we might think of like that, something very secure. But in this context, uh, banking wasn't uh, established as it is now. In fact, banking was more of a, you took your funds to somebody and that person was supposed to invest it. Uh, hopefully you kind of know that person, but many times what they would do is they would take the funds and then move somewhere else. And you had a total loss of your funds. It's not like you could go 
contact uh, somebody in fraud at, at the Roman Empire and say, yes, um, someone has been fraudulent. They, they had a fake bank account. You know, there, there is nothing like that. There's no way that you can come uh, somehow get your funds back unless you find the person again. But even there, the money's probably gone. What Jesus presents here is that a total loss would have been better than just handing back the talent that he gave them. Now, that's incredible, because I, I don't think like that. <clears throat> well, we invested for a while in, in some things while we were with the mission agency that we were, and uh, at the end of the thing, we ended up with less than what we had put in. Uh, I was like, I'm trying to add this thing up, but it's not adding up. It's less than what we're putting in. Uh, of course, it's a tough economy, blah, 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 blah. I would at least want to receive what I gave, right? Jesus says it's better to just lose it all than to just go sit on it. It's better to just have a total loss than to come back with the resources and say, here you go. What does he do? He takes away the talent, gives it to the one who has the ten talents. And he says that to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he does not have will be taken away. All three look like they are slaves of this master. Two of them, by their actions, showed that they had a devotion to their master. One of them showed they had a devotion to self. They weren't truly a slave. They weren't truly a slave of the master. They were there for themselves. So they cast him out to the utter darkness, the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. When we look at this, I think there's some things that could be kind of important observations to make. And the first one has to do with identity. When we look at this, and they're looking at it in this context, they're listening to this parable, they would have been very clear with this aspect of a master and slaves. They're not colleagues. They're not business partners. They're not buddy-buddy. There's a hierarchy. One sets the agenda. The others live for that agenda. And as we apply that to ourselves, I wonder what our identity is. From the parable, we see that the identity is revealed in how they act. Two of them acted in favor of their master. Their actions were in his favor to gain more for him. They had given, he had given resources and they invested those resources. One lived for self, fear. What will happen if I lose it? What will happen if, if I don't gain as much? Live for self. And it's, it's really sad and I wonder how do we identify ourselves? Do we identify ourselves with equal with God? On our own merit, that we're just equal? We're business partners with God together trying to solve the world's problems? Or is one our Savior and our Lord? Paul identified himself as a slave, slave to Jesus Christ. How, how do your actions show how you identify yourself? The other thing we see is this aspect of timing. Uh, there's timing here. There's One immediately starts to invest the resources that they had been given. The other one immediately hid it and sat on it. 
Maybe he thought that later on the economy would be a little bit better. Maybe he thought that later on he would have more time. I don't know what he was thinking, but that time never came, and the owner came back, and all he had was a talent. And I think about this as our time. We, we really have no idea how much time we have. And time is just a very precious resource. Some are thinking, well, later on, I'm not going to be so busy, and then, then I'll start investing the resources God has given me for God. You're not guaranteed that. You have no idea when he's going to come back or when you're going to be called home. This aspect of time, you see the wise ones start investing immediately. The other one decides to just kind of wait on it. Now, as we look at this as a whole, we see that Christians must devote themselves to God by using God's resources for his glory and his purpose. That's what we see from this parable. Christians must devote themselves to God by using God's resources for his glory and his purpose. It's about making decisions. It's about being investing what you have into the life of others. And what resources has God given us? He's given us the Holy Spirit, John 16, 7. Uh, he, he's the God of all comforts who comforts us in our afflictions so that we can comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1, 5 through, uh, 3 through 5. Uh, yet so many, some, so many times we receive comfort, but we never comfort other individuals. It's like we're just a sponge. We want people to comfort us. We have uh, the resource of the Bible. First Timothy 3, 16 through 17. We have uh, the resource of salvation. that We have been saved for, for good works, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We have spiritual gifts that are resources to us. First Corinthians chapter 12. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, that are supposed to be used to edify one another. We've been given resources, and the question is, how are we using those resources for God's glory? Are we using them for ourselves? Some of us have been making good decisions, and I say praise the Lord. Others have not been making such good decisions. And maybe fear is keeping you from making those decisions. I, I used this illustration before of, um, you think about a gymnast on the, on the bar, on the, on the beam. And if you can think of the beam or this table here as the length of someone's life, uh, the person is supposed to do the flips and they get all the way to the end and then dismount, right? And so many times uh, that's what's supposed to happen, but they come to this beam and they're supposed to do the flips and so forth, you know? But they, uh, that's a little scary. I don't know if I should do that. So instead of that, what I think I'm going to do, because I don't want to mess anything up, I don't want to tear a ligament or anything, I'm just going to kind of slide. I'm just going to slide, and uh, it's kind of scary. That, that was a little scary right there. So I'm just going to take a breath, and, uh, okay, I'll make a little bit more. We start getting close to the end of our life, and our prayer starts being, God, please, please let me just die in my lazy chair watching my favorite TV show. With no pain, let, just let me close my eyes, and, and we might do a little something, you know, not a flip, no, not a flip, because that might tear a ligament or something, but 
we might take another little step, and the church just gets excited. I mean, that little step was finally some life, you know. And then God decides to answer your prayer. And you're watching your favorite TV show. You're in your lazy boy. You blink, and you open your eyes in the presence of the Lord. You're there. What do you do? Ta-da! I did it! What's God going to do with that performance? What are you going to do? Good done, faithful servant. That was the best performance ever. You were scared and you crawled along. That was the best crawl I've seen. What's he supposed to do with that? Yet many of us live our lives like that. We've been given resource after resource after resource. And we sit on it. What if someone laughs at me? What if someone ridicules me? What if somebody rejects me? And we just sit on it and sit on it. And then we get to heaven and we're waiting for it. Tell me. What's he going to do with that? I would invite you now to just bow your head. We're about to go into our time of our... um, Lord's Supper, just bow your heads and just think about that for a moment. How are you investing your life? All the resources that God has given you, how are you using them? Some of you are investing your life, you're using every ounce of energy for God's glory. Some of you have a lot of energy, but you're not using it for yourself, for God. You're using it for yourself. And that person should repent and turn to God. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray as we consider our own lives and go into this time of Lord's Supper that we will examine ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you would, please, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord's Supper is a uh, symbol. It doesn't impart extra grace on anybody, no. Uh, But one receives grace in being obedient to, just as we're obedient to any of God's commands. We see in chapter 10 that we are made to be partakers through the sharing of the body of Christ, verse 14 uh, through 15. Uh, We see that uh, we are all made of one body, and we are partakers of one bread, verse 17. It's through the taking of Christ that the many become one. And that's something incredible to think about. Who, who can take of the Lord's Supper? Well, it says that we should examine ourselves. We, we should, uh, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 28, we should examine ourselves. We should not take of the cup or, or eat the bread in an unworthy manner. Who, who here is worthy? No one's worthy. No one can say, I am free of sin, and I'll take that cup, and I'll eat that bread. No. The only way we are worthy is because of an imputed righteousness. At that moment of salvation, God imputes Christ's righteousness to your account. So as God sees you, he does not see your sin, he sees Christ's righteousness. And what we do in this symbol is we remember his sacrifice, and our need to have Christ. It symbolically shares the gospel. 
I would ask uh, Chris Cashin and Dave Lay if they could come up here. And uh, as we go through this, we'll have them each have a word of prayer. Uh, it says in verse um, 23 of chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night that which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Uh, Chris, would you thank uh, the Lord for that bread, uh, his body? Almighty God, as we come before you at this time as we think about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we think about it was, it was his death, it was his body that was broken, and that makes a way for us to come back to you, Almighty God. So we humbly bow before you and we thank you so much, Father. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you as we think about what he went through for us, the suffering that his, that his body took for us, dear Heavenly Father. We thank you. And we know that we can only come to you now because of the suffering that Jesus did for us on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. If you would take the, the top part off and you can retrieve the bread. And he says, uh, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat it. Verse 25 says, in the same way he took the cup also, after supper, Dave, would you please pray and ask the Lord, uh, thank the Lord for this blood that was shed for us. Father in heaven, we again come and kneel to your holiness to thank you for the gift, the grace that you've given us through your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did on the cross you shed your holy blood, holy blood, that covered our sins, that covered us, that we may <clears throat> approach our Father. We thank you, praise you, thank you for giving us this time and this supper that you provided for us. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. I would encourage you to open that tab on the juice side now. And it says, uh, this is my body, uh, sorry, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. It says, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. In a symbolic fashion, we just shared the gospel.
Charles, will you please lead us in our last song?